Hello, Katawan Tokyo. Here come the Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up. It doesn't matter how much finance and how much we adapt. The best thing we can do at the moment to preserve our way of life on our islands is mitigate and to keep global warming to below 1.5 degrees. Pacific Island nations disappointed in Australia's level of climate commitment at COP27. Also, both candidates will be swinging for the fences when it comes to accusing the other of, of not being fit to govern. Date set for CNMI runoff election between incumbent Governor Torres and his former deputy, Palacios. And later on... Crichton's got time to try and win it for Samoa and Stephen Crichton! Samoa breaks the mould at the Rugby League World Cup, defeating hosts England in a nail-biter of a semi-final to become the first Tier 2 nation ever to make it to the finals. At the UN's Climate Change Summit in Egypt, COP27, Pacific Island nations are expressing their disappointment with Australia's level of commitment towards action on climate change issues. As the second and final week of negotiations begin, climate activists are calling out the Australian government, saying it cannot afford to spend more time counting its chickens before they hatch if it's to strengthen relationships with the Pacific and earn the right to co-host COP31 in 2026 with Pacific nations. Rachel Nath with the story. A failed promise and a slap on the face of vulnerable countries in the region is how the Pacific views Australia's commitment so far at COP27. Despite firm calls from the Pacific for a dedicated loss and damage finance facility to be established at COP27, the Australian government has thus far only supported the issue as an agenda item for discussion. Pacific advisor and Greenpeace Australia Pacific Shiva Gounder says simply being better than its predecessors is far from enough for the Australian government to claim success at COP27. Loss and damage is an idea that was born in the Pacific uh, and something Pacific Island nations have been calling for over 30 years. Australia's initial support for another year of loss and damage talks at COP27 is is not a success, but merely just a first step. A youth-led grassroots movement working with communities to fight climate change in the Pacific has called out Australia after negotiations at COP27 for the harm the country inflicts on poorer nations by exporting fossil fuels. 350.org campaign specialist Joseph Sikulu says it is great the negotiations are gaining attention, but he wants to remind Australia of the harm it is still causing. It doesn't matter how much finance and how much we adapt. The best thing we can do at the moment to preserve our way of life on our islands is mitigate and to keep global warming to below 1.5 degrees. And what we know at the moment is in our region, Australia still isn't stepping up to where they need to be. We know that they have at least 29 new proposals for coal mines sat on their desk waiting for approval. We know that Australia is the biggest exporter of coal in the whole entire world. However, Australia wants the Pacific to know they are back after a decade of inaction. Australia's Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Pat Conroy, says Australia's main goal for week one was to let the world know Australia wants to be part of the global solution. What we intend on doing through the COP is driving momentum on implementation of the Glasgow Treaty. Importantly, that includes adaptation. It also includes climate financing, including loss and damage, looking at progressing that where it's appropriate. And thirdly, making sure that there is a laser-like focus on climate mitigation. We cannot lose sight 
of the 1.5 degree objective, 1.5 must stay alive. Australia is yet to make any financial contributions to loss and damage framework. So far, New Zealand, Ireland, Canada, Belgium, Austria and Germany have made financial commitments. The CNMI runoff election pitting incumbent Governor Ralph D.L.G. Torres of the Republican Party against the independent coalition of Lieutenant Governor Arnold Palacios has been set for November the 25th. The Commonwealth Election Commission also said that Palacios will be number one on the runoff election ballot, while Torres will be number two. Torres of the Republican Party topped the general elections but failed to gain a majority share of the votes cast on the 8th of November, paving the way for a runoff race against Palacios of the unified independent team. I spoke with our CNMI correspondent Mark Rabago last week about the lead-up to the election and the challenges experienced on the day. So um, we had an election last Tuesday and was the longest count um, started at 7, I think it ended like 4 p.m. the next day. There were some problems with uh, invalid ballots, missing keys. They had to use a bolt cutter to open, I think, a couple of ballot boxes. There were a lot of debates on what votes are acceptable and are not. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, we got results. So the results were for the gubernatorial elections was Torres won, but since he didn't get 50% or more of the votes, there will be a runoff between him and the runner-up for the elections, which is, coincidentally, his lieutenant governor, Arnold I. Palacios. Uh, So the two uh, will have a runoff two weeks from now, or when they validate the results of the November 8th elections today, which the common elections said they will do. And two weeks from now, they will be figuring in a runoff election. So immediately after, the day after results were out, the third placer for the elections, which is the Democratic Party's Tina Sablan and her running mate, Lila Stafter, uh, immediately threw support and endorsed uh, Arnold Palacios for the gubernatorial runoff elections. So it's a quite daunting task for Torres to, to remain in power, to get a second term because simple math, he had like 42% of the vote and then the rest, the 58% split between Palacios and Tina Sablan. So he has a lot of uh, campaigning to do to at least sway in uh, some of the supporters of Tina and some of the supporters, disgruntled supporters of Palacios to vote him, plus try to encourage or entice those who did not register for the November 8th elections to register this time for the runoff so he could get a, a victory in the runoff elections. This is effectively his, his right-hand man, right? That he's that he's yes. having a runoff against? How did that happen? Well, Torres said that uh, basically that Palacios couldn't run anymore because health-wise, he has some issues. And I think Palacios took offense to that. So like a year before the elections he made up his mind to run as an independent against supposedly his ally, his governor, and that's why this came about. Um, Torres was wanted to run uh, in a very youthful and promising ta- tandem with Senator Vinny Sablan. And Palacios picked a very popular uh, mayor in Mayor 
um, David Apatang, who I think also swayed a lot of voters because he's quite popular on the island of Saipan. He did a lot of things for Saipan. So I think that also contributed to uh, Palacios' strong showing uh, in the November 8th elections. Now, now Torres has come through quite a rocky patch coming into this, hasn't he? Just, just remind us of what Torres has come through to survive to even get to this election. Of course, early in the year, he was impeached by the House of Representatives, but he was absolved by the Senate because he had allies in the Senate, so they didn't proceed with the impeachment. He was impeached, but they didn't find him guilty, so he got scot-free. And then there's some allegations of corruption at the House of Representatives and also FBI investigations, not only him, but those associates with him uh, with regards to, to use of funds and also um, investigations into uh, first-class travel. But uh, at least he won the election, but he didn't get the majority. So here we are. There are some rumblings about trying to amend the Constitution and to get away, take away the runoff election. But uh, at least in this election, they still have it. So he has to square off with his former trusted ally in Palacios for the chief executive position of the land, of the yeah. island. In- interesting times. Now, uh, apart from the politics, what are some of the election issues for the people? Well, clearly it shows that there is a wave of independent part- candidates who won. So they probably they actually won because there's some disgruntlement with transparency in the government, which both Palacios and Tino Sablan were questioning with regards to Torres' uh, expenditure of ARPA funds, which are federal funds, supposed to be to help with the COVID situation in the island. So there's a lack of transparency that a lot of people want our leaders to shed light on. And also, I think the return to serving the people, basically, and that's that's one of the hallmarks of the opposition's platform against uh, against Torres because, he, because there's this uh, idea that Torres has been living a lavish lifestyle uh, with regards to, like, because of the investigations that he's hasn't been paying, allegations of hasn't been paying uh, exorbitant power uh, bill, and then uh, using uh, uh, police boats to go to trips to the Northern Islands, maybe first-class travel and whatnot. So, you know, there, there's there's like an issue of accountability, and I think that's what Pelasius uh, has been championing. With Pelasius, given that he's coming from Torres's camp, would would would, um, would CDMI be getting really be getting anything new with Pelosius if he became governor? Uh, actually, although we have Republicans, Democrats, there's not much distinction of distinction about the two in the CNMI, unlike the states where Republicans tend to sway with conservative values and the, Repub- and the Democrats are more liberal, right? So I don't think there's much difference. What Pelasius probably has is some dirt and mud that, could, that he could sling into the Taurus camp. And, you know, this two weeks before the runoff has been really going to be interesting because both candidates will be swinging for the fences when it comes to accusing the other of, of not being fit to govern. And um, one thing that's uh, in Palacios' uh, camp is that that's, that's an advantage to him is he will be getting the support of the Democratic Party. And Torres didn't even have a chance to wine and dine, so to speak, Tina Sablad, because... Tina Sablan and uh, Torres are, they are like better enemies when it comes to the politics. So not even a chance of uh, trying to sway the other to support 
In New Caledonia, the pro-independence Caledonian Union has reconfirmed its stance that it will negotiate only about full sovereignty with France. The party congress, which re-elected Daniel Gore as party president, has decided not to enter into bilateral or tri-party talks this month when the French ministers are due to discuss the territory's future statute. Mr Gore says as long as the French state does not initiate discussions on a full and complete transfer of sovereignty and does not irrevocably commit to a transfer schedule, the party will have nothing to do with the discussions. RNZ Pacific senior journalist Walter Zweifel has been following developments. Kiara Walter, tell us more about what's happened over the weekend. Well, two of the main pro-independence parties held their congresses, that is the Caledonian Union, which is the biggest party on that side, plus the Palika party. Uh, Both parties had congresses in anticipation of the arrival of the French Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin later this month, when talks are planned to look at any future status of New Caledonia, given that there was a referendum last year on independence. Uh, The Caledonian Union has come out quite strongly in its conditions for any talks with France. Uh, They said they will not engage in discussions about the minute of a new statute unless there's a, a discussion first about New Caledonia's independence. They say preconditions for talks are that France sets a calendar or a timetable for what it calls the full emancipation of New Caledonia. We're talking here a timeline of maybe 2025 and for the full application of the Noumea Accord. Now, with this application of the Noumea Accord, we have to keep in mind that there is an interpretation by the Caledonian Union of what it means. Three times voting no to full sovereignty for the New Caledonian Union means not a return to France. It simply means that this process of decolonization with the referendums has not resulted in New Caledonia becoming independent. Hence, the Caledonian Union wants to have bilateral talks with France to find a way of attaining the sovereignty, which, according to the Caledonian Union and the Canex, is the premise of all these discussions and negotiations, the course that they've had over the last 30 years. Now, the um, you've managed to have a look at the speech given by Daniel Gore at, at the Congress, some some strong positions in that. Um, tell us a bit more about the, the especially the narrative and, and the changing of the narrative that he's proposing. Well, it's going back again to, to where the whole process started back in the 80s, uh, the idea that the New Caledonia should become an independent country. Now, uh, for Daniel Gore, it means that the, this independence question cannot be negotiated. It's just something that has to be decided with a timetable. Uh, he says that uh, time is running out. And in rather stark language, he says that uh, the peace in New Caledonia is at risk. And he says the only guarantors of peace are, in fact, the Canex. He says this decolonization process has to be brought to conclusion. Uh, suggesting there should be uh, a period of maybe five years to f- discuss the, the minutiae of how this transfer has to happen, but that by 2030, New Caledonia is an independent country. Uh, he says, like, uh, any discussions about an audit of decolonization uh, should be dismissed because it would be uh, 
audit of colonization with a warning in there that it may result in France having to pay reparations. And this is, this is all happening ahead of a proposed visit by the French Interior and Overseas Ministers Gerald Damina and Jean-Francois Karenko, right? Yeah, uh, we have to keep in mind that last month there were talks in Paris uh, led by Elisabeth Bourne, the French Prime Minister, where the pro-independent side did not attend. So Mr. Darmana and Karenko are now coming to New Caledonia basically because the FLNK or the pro-independent side refused to go to Paris. Uh, we have now this, again, this strong position from the pro-independent side on what they want. Uh, which contrasts to the anti-independent side and to the French government's uh, position. The French government wants to have broad discussions, not only about the institutional future of New Caledonia, whether it's you know in, in whatever statute that may be drawn up, but they also want to, to raise the, the material issues of uh, the nickel industry, the economy, uh, public finances in New Caledonia are not in very good shape at the moment. Uh, there are big questions about the viability of one of the main nickel producers, that is SLN. Uh, reserves have been more or less used up. So there are huge problems surrounding New Caledonia that need to be confronted and dealt with, uh, apart from the, this question of what sort of institutional future New Caledonia should have. And last but definitely not least, Toa Samoa has upset the apple cart in the Rugby League World Cup, beating the tournament hosts England in a nail-biter of a semi-final to reach its first ever Rugby League World Cup final mere weeks after a 54-point hiding at the hands of the English in the first game of the tournament. And not only is it Samoa's first time in the final, it's the first time ever for a Pacific Island Tier 2 nation to be breathing finals air. Christina Persico reports. Toa Samoa was leading with 77 minutes played before England's Herbie Farnworth ran in a try which was converted to tie the score. The match went to Golden Point Extra Time where the first team to score takes the win. Cometh the moment, cometh Stephen Crichton. England slowing it down, have a look for Milford. Milford again is in position but they're also going to go back to Crichton. Crichton's got time to try and win it for Samoa and Stephen Crichton is history maker Samoa into the final of the Rugby League World Cup what a moment for Rugby League what a moment for that nation that's the moment on Spark Sport and the final whistle set off waves of celebration in Samoa and in Auckland where large crowds gathered in Otara and Mangarei New Zealand police issued a reminder for partiers to be safe and save the heartbreak for English coach Sean Wayne and his side Wayne was devastated but gave credit to Samoa on NRL.com. They were the best team today. They just did the right things at the right time. We didn't. The first time we've not done that and I blame myself. Australia now awaits Samoa in the World Cup final after they squeezed past New Zealand 16-14. Samoa head coach Matt Parrish told NRL.com the final will be a special occasion. We'll enjoy this and then get ready for next week. Yeah, it is a special. Uh, it's special for everyone in Samoa. NRL.com reports Samoa captain Junior Paulo was sinbinned for a lifting tackle in the semi-final but has been cleared to play the final. Matt Parrish expects prop Martin Tapao to be available after an injury sustained in the quarter-final against Tonga but hooker for Amanu Brown is set to be ruled out due to England's 11-day stand-down rule for players suffering a head knock.
The final will take place at Old Trafford in Manchester. The last time Australia and Samoa met in a league match was a Kangaroos victory in Darwin in 2017. Kick-off of the World Cup final will be 5am on Sunday, Samoa time. That's specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and look at me for next time more.